But one of the president's most vocal Republican critics is taking a break from her nonstop blogging at the Washington Post to talk to us, which is really exciting. Hi, I'm Melissa Ross. And I'm Matt Corrigan, and this is Political Insanity. It's the weekly podcast where Matt and myself try to make a little sense out of our insane political reality. And Happy New Year, Matt. Happy New Year. Because if you feel the world has gone mad, well, in many ways it has. (laughs) That's right. Matt and I try to bring a little sanity back to your life by uh, bringing in big names to break down the impact of the Trump administration. And we've got a great name today to kick off 2018, don't we? We sure do. We're, We're very pleased to welcome Jennifer Rubin from the Washington Post and the Right Turn blog. That's right. Uh, Ruben offers reported opinion from a conservative perspective at the Right Term blog. She covers a range of issues, and basically she writes constantly. From what I can tell, she doesn't sleep, Matt. It's amazing what she puts out. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, an incredibly prolific blogger and pundit. She's also emerged as one of the strongest Republican critics of President Trump and the so-called never-Trump movement on the right. So, Jennifer Rubin, welcome to Political Insanity, and thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Nice to be here. And let's begin with the continuing follow to over Michael Wolff's uh, Fire and Fury book, which is Rocked Washington. You've been writing quite a bit about this and some of the quotes in the book that Wolf was able to get from inside the White House. From where you sit up there in Washington right now, is it still all the discussion? Is uh, How significant do you think this book will end up being in the annals of, you know, White House journalism? I think it will be important in part because I think other journalists may feel a little sheepish at this point. Many of these people had the same access, and although there were hints of this, there were general discussion of this, you've got a little bit of taste of this in some of the mainstream publications, there hasn't been this sort of alarm bell ringing from any one particular outlet. So I think now the exercise, properly so for the mainstream media, is to see really what's out there and who else is going to go on record. Many people have raised concerns, me included, about Michael Mm -hmm. Wolff's credibility as a journalist. Uh, Errors have been pointed out in what he's already written. But the information, as just about everyone keeps saying, rings true. So if it rings true, um, there should be some detail and some substance there. So I think this is not the end, but the beginning of a new stage of serious contemplation, serious debate about the pe- president's uh, capacity to govern. And we saw it just last night, an example of that. Axios uh, online publication uh, just celebrated its one-year anniversary, in fact, reports that the president has executive time, yes. which is the new uh, phrase to be used for being on the phone with your friends and on social <laughs> media. I, so, uh, all right. Ask for executive time will know that they're um, not really taking uh, their jobs in school seriously. Um, But in all seriousness, he's curtailing his public time. He doesn't come down to 11. He spends all of this time watching television, which is unprecedented for a chief executive, uh, the commander-in-chief, leader of the free world. So I think those sorts of details complete a picture that should be disturbing to many Americans. It is disturbing, but it is funny, in a a sense, to talk about this executive time, Matt, uh, the instant classic. Where can I get some of this executive time? (laughs) You need it. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Yeah. Well, well, in terms of of following up on that, Jennifer, there's a difference between maybe being unfit for office and not being mentally capable for the office. And so where do you where do people in Washington come down on 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 either side of that? I mean, because I think the mental instability argument is a much 
harder case to make than being so-called unfit for office. That is exactly the conversation that a lot of people are having. What does it mean to be unfit? How does the 25th Amendment play into this? There are a number of White House advisors, namely the director of the CIA and also the U.N. ambassador to the uh, the uh, our U.N. ambassador, who went on the Sunday shows. And these are both credible people, respected people. And they said, listen, in our dealings with him, he's been rational. He listens to what we say. He responds appropriately. So I think you're right that um, calling him completely crackers is probably more difficult. But I think this plays into a whole set of behaviors and attitudes that suggest that he really didn't have a conception of what the office was. He didn't expect to win, as we, I think, have firmly established now. And he really hasn't made the shift. He's not capable of doing the hard work of grasping the details of policy. He's temperamentally erratic, um, which puts the United States at a disadvantage internationally. So I think you're right in suggesting that um, making a case for complete mental incapacity is probably not where we're at right Mm. now. But it does bleed into the general picture of someone who is unfit for office. And, of course, this goes on in the context of the special prosecutor's investigation, which is looking not only at collusion but at obstruction of justice. And there I think you see a connection between Mr. Trump's political problems, legal problems, and his mindset. He doesn't accept or understand constraints on his impulses and his desires. And that may be fine when you're a businessman or in other walks of life, but that has legal and constitutional ramifications when you cannot restrain yourself as chief executive. And to the extent to which he could not control his impulses and felt necessary to lean on the FBI director, for example, not to investigate Michael Flynn, or he felt necessary to suggest that the FBI director, for example, was taped when he wasn't, or he makes other threats attempting to interfere with the independence that we expect of the Justice Department, that then carries legal implications. And so it's very hard to tease out where the Russia investigation starts and stops, where these issues of fitness start and stop, and where a deeper concern really about mental capacity start and stop. And speaking of the Russia investigation, what's your reaction to news out just today? I think it's at NBCNews.com that the president's lawyers are conferring with special counsel Mueller about whether the president will come in for a face-to-face interview with Mr. Mueller. My first two thoughts were, first, I thought he wasn't being investigated, according to him. So at least he's probably figured that out, that he is the subject. Right. Uh, yeah. and, um, and the second is, good luck trying to come up with some alternative. Um, the special prosecutor, of course, is not Uh, in any way um, forced to accept the president's offer, for example, of a written statement. Um, And really, the special prosecutor has a lot of cards. Um, He can agree to a private interview under oath. That's what President Clinton did during the Monica Lewinsky investigation. Or he can slap him with a grand jury summons, and uh, they're going to have a battle royale in the courts. But ultimately, I think the president will have to show up and testify if they can't work something out before a grand jury. So I think we're getting down to the point at which um, the president's lawyer realizes that he is in peril. And I am certain that any lawyer worth his salt would not want that client to go in front of a grand jury or, frankly, testify under oath at all. Um, He tends to say the most alarming things, um, even in the 
context of a casual investigation under the pressure and the presence of his skilled prosecutor, skilled questioner, he's likely to say all sorts of things that are going to get him in trouble. Could be. If you lie under oath, Matt, it is a felony. Right. And and, and Jennifer, uh, you're an attorney as well. And, and so it, do you think it's a point of settled law that the president cannot be indicted? And, and, and the reason I ask that question is because if people are depending upon the 25th Amendment or possible impeachment proceedings to remove uh, President Trump, I think that's a very high wall to climb. I, I just don't see his political allies doing that right now. And so do you believe the president can be can be charged with a crime like this? I think he can, but that's actually not really, I think, the state of current law. The precedent for this was set during Watergate when the special prosecutor or the independent prosecutor in that case um, decided that, no, we couldn't um, indict a sitting president. So instead, he made a referral of impeachment to Congress. And, of course, uh, Richard Dixon resigned before he could um, actually be um, either impeached or removed. So I think right now the settled policy of the Justice Department, under whose auspices Robert Mueller is working, is that they do not indict a sitting president. Therefore, his options would be to suggest, number one, he could be indicted, but after he leave office. Number two, to make a referral um, in the same way that Leon Jaworski did to the um, House of Representatives, which would be constitutionally capable of proceeding with impeachment. Or three, do none of the above um, and either find that the president hasn't engaged in wrongdoing or simply not issue any report because it doesn't meet the standard either of an indictment or something that he believes to be an uh, impeachable offense. Um, I tend to think the most likely outcome is going to be some kind of referral um, if, in fact, he is able to substantiate what I think now is really the focus of the investigation, which is obstruction of justice. And mm-hmm. It's not dirty pool, and it's not unusual, frankly, that investigations into one thing wind up being about something else, and usually these so-called process crimes, perjury, obstruction, pressuring witnesses, lying under oath. When you think about it, that's the cover-up was what Watergate ultimately turned out to be about, and likewise with President Clinton. It wasn't um, Whitewater or any of the other financial investigations uh, and leads that Ken Starr was seeking to look into when he began, it was lying under oath about Monica Lewinsky that Mm -hmm. finally um, brought the House to the point of impeachment. So I think um, this should not come as a surprise to anyone that um, even if there's not an underlying crime or there's insufficient evidence of an underlying crime or misdeeds, that there can be very substantial evidence that comes to light about misdeeds and uh, real problem and real liability for the president. Do you believe the president and his aides committed obstruction of justice? I do. I think based upon what we already know, um, either from the public testimony of individuals, from the plea bargain or the indictments from other individuals, I think there is a very substantial case of obstruction that the president was so desperate to stop or impede the Russia investigation that he not only fired the FBI director, but cooked up a phony reason for it, um, lied about it, sent aides out to lie about it, that he leaned on the FBI director for a oath of loyalty and then to go easy on his friend Michael Flynn, 
and that there was a session on Air Force One, which has now become the focus of a lot of public discussion, that he helped draft a statement that was patently false about a meeting in June of 2016 in which his son-in-law, his son, and his then-campaign chief, Paul Manafort, met with a group of Russians, and he was intimately involved in drafting a statement that misled the public as to what that meeting was all about. So I think there is no one killer fact in any of this, but you can see the pieces, just like a mosaic coming together to really paint a very dramatic, damning picture of someone who did not understand, did not appreciate the separation between the chief executive and law enforcement. And he said it himself in many instances. He thinks those people are there to defend him. He wanted Jeff Sessions to remain there no matter what the conflicts to protect him. And that, of course, is not the role of the Justice Department. The role of the Justice Department is to protect the American people and the Constitution. His failure to appreciate that and to limit himself to the behaviors that normal presidents, that every president before him, with the exception of one who was um, near impeachment, Richard Nixon, has abided by, I think will be um, ultimately his downfall, whether it's an impeachment or whether it's not being reelected in 2020, I can't tell. But I do think there is very substantial information to put together a charge of obstruction of justice. Well, if we do get to a referral or a recommendation for impeachment from the special counsel, I mean, we're off for a wild ride. I mean, if it happens before November, because it, it's hard to see this Republican Congress responding to that in, in a positive way. Do you have concerns that and because, you know, you obviously follow this step by step and you're, you're the reason that uh, that's the reason that we want to talk to you today. But many people don't. And so. Do you have a concern that uh, changing power or removing a president is, is might be done outside of an election process? Because uh, we, yeah. we, we do have the, the elections that we've had in, you know, in the recent weeks have been a rejection of Republicans. And so should the voters take care of this? I think that is a very critical question. And impeachment is not something anyone should take lightly. I think you not only have to find that the president uh, either committed a crime, high crimes, misdemeanors, did other wrongdoing of sufficient weight or was really incapable of upholding his oath to make that monumental decision that the will of the American people should be overridden. In some sentences, uh, in some instances, um, that is inescapable, and I think that was true in Watergate. But we are even in a much more acrimonious, much more divisive and polarized time, even than we were in Watergate when a group of Republicans were willing to go tell Richard Nixon that the jig was up. And uh, I do have grave concerns about that. In some ways, I think it would be beneficial if this did come to a head before the 2018 midterms. I think it will in any case, because then the election acts as a referendum on that issue. If, for example, there is a referral of impeachment and the voters overwhelmingly return Democrats to the House and to the Senate, then I think that is, in essence, an endorsement of impeachment, whether that's seen that way by the people they elect um, and by Republicans remains to be seen. But I think you hit the nail on the head that you have to have a level of seriousness, gravity, about the charges, and you have to be very attuned to the 
sense that the will of the people is being overridden, particularly with someone who has been able to whip up public opinion, shed doubt on our democratic institutions and on the norms that we have lived under for so long, that you want to reestablish those, not further erode those. You don't want to have a situation where at the drop of the hat, every other president gets impeached. Um, that would be a recipe for chaos. So I think a lot is going to depend on how detailed the special prosecutor uh, report or referral turns out to be. I think a lot will determine uh, whether there are any Republicans who are brave enough to look at this with some sense of objectivity and say, this really has been a bridge too far. And then ultimately, I do think the American people are going to play a role in this because I think the way the timing plays out, it's going to be um, coming to a head before the 2018 midterms. Let's ask you one more question about the Republican Party. You write, of course, the right turn blog. You're a prominent conservative writer, Jennifer Rubin. You're one of the most prominent Republican critics of the president. But as you pointed out, uh, there's still strong Republican support for the president, 80 to 90 percent approval among Republican primary voters, for example. Is it a lonely experience for you? I've often wondered this when I read your column and then I read other conservative critics of what you say about the president and write about the president. Is it a lonely experience for you as a conservative being such a vocal critic of this administration? In some sense, yes, but on the other sense, uh, there are others out there uh, with whom I have a great sense of camaraderie oh, and pride in taking this position. There are people like Max Boot, a uh, very prominent foreign policy voice, Bill Kristol, of course, who's been um, a really very prominent figure in the conservative movement. Elliot Cohen would be another um, yeah. individual. Um, there are maybe more than a handful, a little bit more than a handful. Yeah. So there is some support, um, but... You know, I think there's also, um, and this is something I think that's a bit of a life lesson, sometimes doing the right thing or taking an unpopular position um, is something you should take pride in and something that should be um, a sense of, uh, of, not of pride, but of mission and of commitment. And um, I wake up every day with a sense of grave responsibility. I think every journalist, every person involved in the political conversation should feel the same, and that my job is to help inform and uh, to some extent entertain um, viewers and readers, and that through public dialogue, I do think people are capable of um, learning, changing, shifting position to a certain extent, and um, I think uh, it's often a relatively small minority that eventually becomes the predominant view. Uh, that's why we have dissents at the Supreme Court, because sometimes mm. those dissents become very persuasive mm. and become the majority view with the passage of time. So, yes, at times it's a little bit lonely. Um, more so, I think it's disappointing um, in many conservatives who I think um, have compromised long-held principles and values to support this president. But I think um, it's the times in which we live. We have unusual bedfellows. Uh, I know a lot of liberals and uh, moderates and people all up and down the political spectrum uh, who share my views. Right. And um, sometimes you just have to fight the good fight. Well, we so appreciate you uh, taking a break, as I said, from your very busy blogging schedule to give us your thoughts uh, 
Thank you so much, Jennifer Rubin. We really appreciate your participation. Have a great day. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That's Jennifer Rubin of The Washington Post. And, of course, you see her uh, on cable news. You read her in The Post, Matt. Very busy writer and pundit on this administration. Great to have her, isn't it? It was. And if our listeners want to keep up with this blow-by-blow of what's going on with this investigation, she's the person to follow. You may not agree with her, but, man, she keeps up with everything. She really does. And thanks for listening. This has been Political Insanity, our first podcast of the new year. Much more to come. I'm Melissa Ross. And I'm Matt Corrigan. Happy New Year. 